Father, you are who you are. You don't change. You're never any bigger in one moment than you are in the next. But it's our eyes that are the problem, and we need bigger eyes and bigger hearts to see you, Lord. And we thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit this morning that can give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowing you, and the eyes of our heart can be enlightened. These are things that you can do, and these are things we ask you to do now as we open your word. And we pray, Father, for the ministry of your word throughout this area in which we live and minister. We pray for our sister fellowships, Calvary Chapel down in Watsonville with Pastor Dylan and Larry and Aptos and Pastor Joe and uh, Capitola and here. We pray, Lord, that your anointing would be upon the ministry of the word through those that we are so close to. We also pray for every church and every place where the Word of God is held in high esteem and where the Son of God is proclaimed as the Son of God and Lord. And we pray in the name of Jesus that you would bless the ministry of your Word. And where it's already been sown this morning, we pray that you would cause the Word to bear the fruit that you want it to bear. And we thank you for it. And we do lift up Pastor Bill in Fremont this morning. We thank you for this opportunity for him. And we pray that you would use him to minister to those dear saints at Calvary Chapel, Fremont, this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Revelation chapter 18 this morning. Revelation chapter 18, as we continue through our study of this amazing book, the only book in the Bible where it's specifically stated that those who hear and keep the words of this uh, prophecy are blessed. So it has its own beatitude attached to it. Revelation chapter 18, it's a chapter which, of course, fits within the time frame of the tribulation period. The overall look at the book of Revelation, it starts in chapter 1 with the vision of Christ, and then the outline of the book is given in Revelation 1.19. And it's that John was supposed to write the things which he had seen, the things which are, and the things which would take place after these things. Chapters 2 and 3 in Revelation deal with the church age, the time of the church and the church's existence in this time frame called the church age and also the messages to the churches that Jesus has for each of the churches churches in Asia. Chapters 4 and 5, the churches in heaven. The Lamb of God, who is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, is worshipped there. The church is in heaven with him, and the one who sits on the throne is also being worshipped there. Chapters 6 through 19, churches still in heaven, the seven-year tribulation period begins, also known as the 70th week of Daniel, or also known as the time of Jacob's trouble. Now, the purposes of this seven-year period of time, this tribulation period, are several. One is God is wanting to deal again directly with his chosen people, the Jews, Israel, to bring them into a strong relationship with himself to where they would believe that Jesus is their Messiah. Also the purpose for the tribulation period is that God wants to bring in the very last harvest of souls, 
prior to the judgment of God falling upon the earth and prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then a third purpose is that God is judging during this tribulation period the Christ-rejecting world who have worshipped the Antichrist and his false religious system. So that's chapters 6 through 19. We've got chapter 1, the vision of Christ. Chapters 2 and 3, the church age and messages to the church. Chapters 4 and 5, the churches in heaven. Chapters 6 through 19, the tribulation period. And then chapter 20, the thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennium, as well as the great white throne judgment of God. And then chapters 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth and the eternal state. Now that's the way it's written. That's the chronology of it. It is what it is. It says what it says. That's how we understand the book of Revelation. We see it as it's written. We see Jesus Christ in an exalted place. We see Jesus Christ ministering to the church during this age. We see Jesus Christ coming into the clouds of heaven to receive his church unto himself in the rapture. We see Jesus Christ opening the seven-sealed scroll, which makes up the tribulation period and all of the things that go on within it. And then we see Jesus Christ coming again, setting up his kingdom. And then we see Jesus Christ sitting on the throne at the great white throne judgment, judging all of those uh, unbelieving dead who had died previously. And then we see Jesus Christ recreating the heavens and the earth and bringing in the eternal state, he and his father dwelling within the new city of Jerusalem, and that's where we will be forever and ever and ever. And that's what the book of Revelation teaches. Now, during the last part of the great tribulation period, there will be a great culmination of the judgment of God upon the Christ-rejecting world. The last bowls of judgment are poured out. Remember seven seals. The seventh seal is the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet is the seven bowls. The last of the bowls of judgment are poured out. The battle of Armageddon is fought, and then there is judgment upon this great city of Babylon, which is the commercial center of the Antichrist government and of the whole world. And that's what we get today. In chapter 18, we have the judgment upon the great city of Babylon, the commercial center of the Antichrist government and of the whole world. And so we see in verse 1, after these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a habitation of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury." So again, the proclamation of another angel. Now, the angel of chapter 17, which showed uh, to John the judgment of the great harlot who was sitting on many waters, that angel was one of the seven angels who poured out the bold judgments. 
This is another angel here in verse 1 of chapter 18, and we are not told which other angel it is. But this angel cries out with a loud voice and utters this judgment, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. Again, another example of what is called the prophetic past tense. And this is also stated in Revelation 14.8, virtually the same kind of proclamation about the judgment of Babylon, that it is fallen. Now, Ryrie points out in his commentary, this is a different event from what happens in chapter 17, where the political power destroys religious Babylon. Here, in this chapter, the kings lament this destruction of this Babylon, which will apparently occur at the end of the tribulation period. Now, whether this Babylon is centered in Rome or is an actual, literal, rebuilt city of Babylon is greatly debated. In either case, and I'm quoting Ryrie, her octopus-like arms reach out far beyond any single city. So another way to look at the difference between chapter 17 and 18 is that chapter 17 is the judgment of the religious system. And Babylon the Great in chapter 17 is identified as the great harlot, the mother of abominations. So every spiritual abomination that has ever been given birth to throughout all of the ages owes its origin to this great harlot, mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of uh, harlots and the mother of the abominations of the earth. Now that's chapter 17, and so it deals with the judgment of religious Babylon. But here in chapter 18, it's very obvious that there's a different emphasis. We see an emphasis upon kings who have done business with this Babylon, mourning over her destruction. We see merchants who have done business with this Babylon, mourning over its destruction. And then we see those who do their business on the seas, those that are traitors upon the seas and the oceans, they mourn over the destruction of this Babylon. So chapter 18 is dealing with the judgment of God upon commercial political Babylon. Chapter 17, the judgment of God upon religious Babylon. Chapter 18, the judgment upon commercial and uh, political Babylon. And look what it tells us here about this city. It says in verse 2 that it has become a habitation of demons. That means it's a place where demons love to live. It's a prison for every foul spirit. So these foul spirits are actually imprisoned there, and it's a cage for every unclean and hated bird. And in the parables, Jesus referred to the birds as meaning Satan and his work specifically in the parable of the sower. So Satan is highly involved in what is going on in this city. And the application or the point to make here is that demons and Satan love living where there is evil, and they love living where there is darkness. Whenever there's a culture or an area or a city or a community even where they have shut the door to the light, and have closed their hearts to the truth of the gospel, that place now is dark. And in that darkness, the vacuum and the darkness is met by an invasion of evil spirits. And their purpose, of course, 
is to live within the darkness because they can't handle the light and to perpetuate the darkness through further deeds and teachings of evil. And that's what we have in Babylon. It's a cage for every unclean and hated bird. It's a prison for every foul spirit. It's a habitation of demons. And this is what we find in cities, in regions, in communities, in countries, and in even continents all over the world. These kinds of uh, manifestations whenever there is a love for the darkness and not a love for the truth. And every nation, verse 3, has drunk of the wine of the wrath of Babylon's fornication. And the kings of the earth committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth became rich through her luxury. In verse 4, we have the words of even another voice from heaven. Now this section begins in verse 4, these words from another voice from heaven, not the original angel of verse 1, but another voice from heaven, and these words go all the way through to the end of verse 20. So there are uh, several sections within this overall ongoing statement of this other voice. And the very first one we read is the exhortation to God's people to come out of Babylon. Verse 4, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her justice she rendered to you. Repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mixed for her double. In the measure that she has glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. We're going to talk more about this later in the message, but the exhortation for God's people in any age to come out of commercial political Babylon, separate from her, get as far away from her as you possibly can, and the warning is so that we will not share in her sins and receive of her plagues. She deserves the judgment she's going to be receiving, Verses 6 and 7. And the judgment that she deserves is directly related to her own attitude. And her own attitude is simply what verse 7 says. It says that her attitude is, I sit as a queen. I rule. I have a throne. I sit as a queen. It's a very proud, arrogant attitude. And I am no widow. I've not lost anything. I'm not without... Uh, the husband, or I'm not without the benefits of all that a husband would provide, and I shall not see sorrow, there will be no judgment, and I will continue to experience this prosperity. That's Babylon's attitude. That's commercial Babylon's attitude. That's political Babylon's attitude. The arrogance of the world that has cut itself off from the mercies of God and the grace of God. The pride of the world, saying we can do these things. It's the same kind of pride as existed back in Revelation 11 in the days of the Tower of Babel. We will build for ourselves a tower that will reach up into heavens. 
And that tower and that worship was designed to cut off any need for God, establish man's own system of worship and commerce. God says, too early in human history for that to happen. I'm not going to let this take place. And so he confused their tongues at Babel, so they could not communicate with one another, and they could not carry on with their plans. But here... The time is ripe. God has allowed Babylon to continue on with its plans, and these arrogant attitudes deserve judgment. And so it tells us in verse 8, Therefore her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. And now in verse 9 and 10, we see the lament of the kings of the earth over Babylon's judgment. Verse 9, and the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. So great is the judgment upon this city and upon this system, and so great is the heat and the smoke of her burning that these kings, as you see it in the text, have to stand at a distance from her and watch from a distance the smoke of her burning. They'll be mourning and weeping because they're kings. And when Babylon is judged, these kings have lost their power. Kings that lose their power mourn and weep. Politicians that get unelected or replaced by hopefully someone better than them weep and mourn. It's what happens because no one likes to lose their power. Samuel Butler, all the way back in the 17th century, said this, Authority intoxicates and makes mere sots of magistrates. The fumes of it invade the brain and make men giddy, proud, and vain. How true. Chuck Colson, special counsel to President Nixon in the pre-Watergate years, now a very powerful and used-of-God Christian leader in this country and all over the world, he said, power is like salt water. The more you drink, the thirstier, thirstier you get. And these kings don't like to surrender their power, but they have no choice because Babylon, their system, has been destroyed. So they have to surrender their power, and that's the reason why they are mourning. While these words of this other voice from heaven continue, and we see the weeping and the mourning of the merchants of the earth in verses 11 through 17. Verse 11, and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her. For no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron and marble, and cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and bodies and souls of men. And the fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you, and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. 
The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour such great riches came to nothing. And so anything and everything that the merchants of the earth have sold, no longer are these goods being purchased because Babylon has been judged. And because these items have no longer been purchased, the merchants mourn. They don't care about people, these merchants, and they don't care about the damage and the devastation that their system and their greed have wrought upon humanity. All they care about is that their economic system has been destroyed and they don't have money any longer in their pockets. And I think it's tragic and something that we need to repent of as a nation, the fact that we elect presidents and politicians on the basis of what they're going to do for the economy. That's our number one consideration in these days of political involvement. And it's sad and it's tragic. There's much more to things like that than the economy. There should be much more involved in a decision to elect anyone to office than how well they're going to do in putting Americans back to work, although that is an important issue. But that's the way it is during this time of judgment. When Babylon is judged, the merchants mourn because their profits are gone. And how have these profits come? They've come through their cruelty as they've used others. They've sold all these objects, but at the very end of verse 13, it includes the bodies and the souls of men. And unfortunately, that's often what is involved in the evils of the evil part of commercialism. The bodies and souls of men are jeopardized and hurt. The idea has a lot of different applications. And obviously today we could look at widespread prostitution, which is motivated by greed and motivated by that sordid aspect of local economies. We could look at pornography, which is a very, very lucrative business in this country and in worldwide, uh, and, but the lives that are destroyed the marriages that are destroyed, the people that are destroyed, the children that are destroyed. It's, it's not even possible to quantify it. And then we have the abortion industry, which is an industry. And make mo no mistake about it, the abortion industry is very, very lucrative for doctors and for hospitals and for organizations. And yet they're dealing with the bodies of human beings and the destruction of that human being that is being uh, grown within the mother's womb. These merchants don't care about any of that. They don't care that people are suffering. They only care that the market has fallen apart. And so in verse 14 it says that the fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you. Very interesting. What these merchants thought that they were going to get out of their crass commercialism 
and what they thought they would personally gain from their goods and from their income and all of these things that go along with it. They haven't gained anything. The fruit that their souls had longed for has gone from them. In other words, what they were aiming at didn't pan out. There was an emptiness. There was a blackness. There was a darkness. There was a hole in their heart. They thought it would accomplish something. They thought it would give them something, but it didn't at all. And I would just propose that in very, very real sense, hell will be like this for people that want to be there. Hell will be the unfulfillment of longings and the impossibility of fulfilling those longings. Why? Because they have chosen to live a life apart from God. They don't want any light. They don't want any truth. And so, therefore, they reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they've chosen to be separated eternally from God, choosing rather that existence apart from God than any future eternal blissful existence in heaven with God. And those who live that way, they will have a, an eternal existence of unfulfilled desires. Wanting the desires to be fulfilled, hoping that they'll be fulfilled, but no possible way of having them fulfilled. And what a dark, dark existence that will be. And that's the way it is for these merchants. They cry out. And then we continue with the words of this other voice from heaven. And now we have the mournful cries of sea traders over Babylon's judgment in 17b through 19. And every shipmaster, all who travel by ship, sailors and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? And they threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she is made desolate. So similar to the cries of the merchant, amazed at what's going on. But now the typical gestures of mourning In the Bible, when someone puts dust on their heads and someone weeps and wails, it's over their sin. But in this case, it's not weeping and wailing and dust because of sin. It's not sackcloth and ashes. It's not that what's going on at all. But instead, it's grief over the fact that the city has been destroyed and amazement over the fact that it took only one hour for the city to be made desolate. In verse 20, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. So this whole system, this commercial political Babylon, along with religious Babylon Babylon in chapter 17, is responsible for the persecution and the death of untold millions over the years who have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's still going on today, all over the world. But now, Babylon having been judged, God has avenged all of those years of persecution and all of those lives whose blood has been spilled. God has avenged all of that on Babylon. 
So we see the city violently overthrown in verses 21 through 24. Then a mighty angel took up a stone, like a great millstone, and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you any more. And no craftsman of any craft shall be found in you any more. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you any more. And the light of a lamp shall not shine in you any more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you any more. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. For by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. Wars are fought, generated and motivated by commercial political Babylon. Untold numbers of lives, millions and millions of lives, end as a result of commercial political Babylon. And you can see the picture here that when this city is thrown down, every single aspect of culture that would generally and normally give us joy no longer produces any joy because it can't even be found within Babylon. No music, no more symphonies, no more top 40 radio stations. Do they even have those anymore? No more any of that. No more theater, no more productions, no more movies, excellent movies. None of that. No more craftsmen, no more artwork, no more beauty, no more marriages, no more anything that would typically give us joy. No more giants winning the pennant. I promised myself I wasn't going to bring that up. (laughs) The service has already been invaded by the giants. but it's just a very black and dark time. And so the violent overthrow of the great city of Babylon, and again, all of this takes place near the very end of the tribulation period prior to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. One interesting word in all of this is in verse 23, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. The word is pharmakeia. We get the word pharmacy or pharmaceuticals from this word. And it involves sorcery, witchcraft, but it also is connected in many ways to the development and use of drugs. So sorcery, witchcraft, the preparation and use of drugs, uh, some forms of magic, all of that have been part of commercial and political Babylon's arsenal to deceive men. And this city is to be blamed for all the dead in the earth. And all of it, doesn't it, boils down to greed and power. Greed and the lust for power. And you can look at any regime, you can look at any political system, you can look at any dictator or autocrat or evil politician throughout history, and it all comes down to greed and the lust for power. And so the extent of this accusation against Babylon is that the great city is symbolic of the world system at large. It's symbolic of all of the world 
And there's no one literal city that's responsible for all these things, but Babylon is named as the representative city for all of that that has taken place. So wrapping this up, WRAP. What we know for certain as we look at Revelation 18 is that this is a future event. This has not happened yet. This judgment upon Babylon has not taken place. The collapse in our economy now is nothing compared to what will take place at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. The second thing we know for certain is that this judgment upon Babylon will be very sudden. Look at verse 8. Her plagues will come in one day. Look at verse 17. In one hour, such great riches come to nothing. Look again at verse 19, where it says, In one hour she is made desolate. The judgment upon Babylon will be sudden. And we also have commented that the judgment upon Babylon will be well-deserved. But another thing to note is the judgment of Babylon will be known about and felt by everyone living on the earth at that time. Verse 9, her plagues will be in one day, she'll be utterly burned with fire. Verse 9, the kings of the earth all will weep and lament for her. And so it's known about. Verse 11, the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her. Verse 17, again, uh, in one hour, and every shipmaster mourn over her. So it's known about and it's felt as well, this judgment. Verse 3, all of the kings and all of the merchants have felt this judgment. Verses 9 and 10, verse 15, verse 19. Everyone feels the impact of this judgment at the very end of the tribulation period. What it's dealing with here is the world. Now, when we think about and meditate on the concept of the world and think about what the Bible has to say about the world, we have two seemingly conflicting statements. We've got the statement of John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So God loved the world. God loves the world. He loved the world so much that he sent his son to die for the world. But then we see in 1 John 2, verse 15, that we are commanded not to love the world, neither the things that are in the world. God loves the world so much that he gave his son, yet we're told not to love the world. So which is it? Should we be like God and love the world, or should we obey what John says and not love the world? And the answer is that when John speaks about the world, he's not speaking about the people that are in the world. He's speaking about the system that governs and rules the world. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. He loved the people that are in the world. He loves the people that are in the world. He loves you. He loves me. He loves the merchants in this chapter. He loves the kings in this chapter. He loves the wicked, evil politicians that might be involved in all of this. He loves them all. He loves me. He loves you. He loves everyone. So much that he sent his son. He loves the people in the world. 
But we as believers are not to love the system of the world. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world nor the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So God says, don't love, don't attach yourself to, don't be devoted to the world system because the world system is not of the Father. It's of the world. The world system is involved with lust, the lust of the flesh. It's involved with pride, the pride of life. It's involved with lust, the lust of the eyes. These things have to be rejected and they have to be fled from and we should consciously seek to not love the world system but instead love the people that are living in the world. So how do we apply Revelation chapter 18 and gain some benefit from it as believers? Let me just give you a few thoughts to consider and pray about as you spend time over this, hopefully this week. Number one, be discerning. Be discerning. Be aware that the world system and the power and the seduction of wealth is very great and is very powerful. And even believers in Jesus Christ can be seduced to fall into the seduction of wealth and the seduction of power. And there is, of course, within our world a very, very strong marketing and advertising thrust that is aiming itself at us like a blast furnace. It's everywhere we go. I mean, everywhere we turn. We are being manipulated or attempting to be manipulated by virtually everything that's available. And we don't think about it very often, but that's what is taking place. And you've heard me say this before, I'll say it again. This is one of the reasons I don't trust news sources. Because news sources are driven by ratings. And ratings, when they go up, increase advertisers. And advertisers, when they increase, increase the amount of money into the station and into the producers of that program. It's all about money. If it was about news and about what's true and objective and real, we'd be getting different reports than what we're getting now. But if it doesn't sell, if it doesn't produce advertising dollars, it's either taken off the air or never gets put on the air. It's all about money. Yet we sit there in our chairs and we watch this drivel, much of it, and we think that this is representative of what's actually happening in the world. We just need to be discerning and just know how much manipulation there really is involved in the world system as it's throwing itself in our direction. Not only do we need to be discerning, but we need to be content. This commercial system is very alluring and, of course, it would cause us to be discontented. We can think that our value and our significance in life has to do with what we own or what we can get our hands on. And that's, of course, a lie. My significance is not because of what I own, how much money I have, where I live, the kind of home 
that I live in, those are not the criteria that can measure my significance as a human being. There's only one criterion that can measure a person's significance as a human being, and that is, who are they in Christ Jesus? Are you in Christ or are you out of Christ? If you are in Christ, your significance is because you are now in the Son of God and the Son of God is in you. That makes you valuable. Now, we're all valuable whether in or out of Christ, but the ones who are in Christ, let God make them valuable. (laughs) We're giving God permission to bless us by being in his Son. So it doesn't have to do with these things. Jesus said, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. It just doesn't. So we need to be content. And the fruit of that contented attitude, I'm happy with what I have. God is good to me. He's given me all I need. The fruit of that decision is to live within my means, to get out of debt, and to focus on being a good steward of God's resources. That's really what it's all about. God has given me these things. He's put these things in my possession. They belong to him. How can I manage them well for his glory? That's what it's all about. Secondly, come out from among them and be separate. That's what the exhortation and commandment of verses 4 and 5 were. Come out from among them and be separate. Paul said something similar in 2 Corinthians 6. He said, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Isn't that wonderful? The idea of separation from the world, separation from the world system, and from the ideals of the world, and the world view of the world, and the things that are important to the world separating myself from these things. No, I'm not going to focus on the things that the world thinks are important. That which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the eyes of God, Jesus said. But the things that are of low esteem among men in general tend to be of high esteem in the eyes of God. And we need to make decisions that are based upon that. But when we do, when we separate ourselves, guess what happens? We have a more intimate and special fellowship with God as Father than we would otherwise. Beautiful possibilities. Think about Lot, the nephew of Abraham. I mean, he had a great choice to make in his life. There he was standing on the top of those hills with Abraham, his uncle, and Abraham realized that the flocks and the herds and the servants they possessed were too great for both of their companies to coexist in the same place at the same time. They needed to separate. They needed more room. And so Abraham, ever the gentleman, gave his nephew Lot the choice. If you go down that way, I'll go over this way. If you go over this way, I'll go down that way. And Lot, from his vantage point, up in those mountains of Israel, looked down over the Jordan Valley, down towards the Dead Sea, and he saw how beautiful it was, how well watered it was, how green and luscious it was, the agriculture that was being produced there, the economic possibilities that that region would afford him, and he chose that. 
He was thinking about the physical. He was thinking about what he could gain out of it. There's no indication that he sought the will of God. So he went down into that area. And then eventually, the Bible tells us he pitched his tent toward Sodom. So he became enamored of city life. just happened to be that Sodom and Gomorrah were notorious for their wickedness. But that didn't stop him. He liked the idea of city life, and so he moved closer to Sodom. And then eventually he moved into Sodom, and then eventually became one of the leaders of Sodom. Not in a positive way, not to affect them at all. If anything, he was the one that was affected. He was sitting among the gates of the elders of Sodom, sitting among the gates of the city. And this was the problem. Lot had basically compromised. Had he chosen differently, what would have become of, of Lot's life? Now, in the New Testament, in Second Peter, it tells us that Lot was a righteous man. And that's how God saw him. But even as a righteous man, he made poor choices. And he had to escape Sodom and Gomorrah with his very life. Barely, by the skin of his teeth. And even then, he couldn't convince his wife not to look back. She looked back and was subject to her own judgment, turned into a pillar of salt. So it's a horrible thing that uh, can happen when there's spiritual compromise in these areas. And you think of the potential of a man like Lot, what he could have become, what his future would have been, the influence he could have had had he not lived within Sodom and given himself over to those ideals and that worldview. And the same is true of you and me, what potential there is. By separating ourselves from the world and from its system and really living lives separated unto God, what can God do for, for us? What can he do through us? There's no, there's no book that's been written that can describe it all. There's no end to the potential of what God wants to do in a life. But it's really up to us as to how separate we're going to be. And so this exhortation, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins. Very important for you and me today. And then thirdly and lastly, Jesus told us, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth or rust corrupt or where thieves break through and steal because those things all will be destroyed. But he said instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That's the, the focus. The focus is heaven. And you know, I have to be honest with you, as a pastor... I feel it my calling and my responsibility in shepherding and pastoring a flock to help the people in the flock be ready for heaven. Now, Jesus gets us into heaven, but the reward that you and I have in heaven has everything to do with the choices we make. And there's a difference between having a full reward and a very partial reward, or even losing much of our reward. We'll be in heaven, but we will possibly lost our reward, or maybe not have received the reward that we could have received, or the best alternative, a full reward. And I believe it's very important that I remind you and that I remind myself that one day we're going to all appear before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ to receive according to what we have done in this body, whether it's good or bad. 
we will stand before the Lord Jesus and he will evaluate the way you and I have lived our lives as Christians. And accordingly, he will reward us. The rewards are by grace, but still we have had a part to play in the receiving of those rewards because we made choices to be separate from the world and to be separate unto him and to live our lives for him. And it's the, the purpose of scripture and the role of the pastor to remind us all of these things. This is very important. It would be wonderful if we're all there at the judgment seat of Christ and the entire fellowship, the entire family of believers gathered here would say, oh man, wasn't that great? We encouraged each other so much while we were alive on earth and before the rapture took place. We encouraged each other to live full on and completely sold out for the Lord. Isn't it great that now that we're here, Jesus has said to us, well done, good and faithful servants, enter into the joy of the Lord. It was worth it. It really was. It was worth it to give my time and my focus and my attention to things eternal instead of things carnal or having to do with the world. It was really worth it. We'll know it then. We'll see it then. Let's see it now so that it affects the way we actually live. So, in my business life, Lay up treasures in heaven. In the goals that I have for my life, what is your goal for your life? How do you want to live the rest of your life? If you're 57 like I am, what do you want your remaining 30 years, if the Lord tarries or whatever the Lord gives you, what do you want them to look like? Do you have anything to do with the way those years are going to develop? Of course you do. It has to do with your choices and it has to do with my choices. If God gives me 30 more years at 87, I still want to be teaching the Bible, ministering to people, strengthening the body of Christ. I don't plan on changing that. I don't plan on getting an RV and traveling around the country just to kick back. Now, I might get an RV and travel around the country, but if I do, it will be for ministry purposes. Sherry and I have actually talked about that. That's kind of a wild idea. <laughs> To visit all the churches that we know and to spend time in each community and minister to the pastors and bless them. But what is it that you want your life to look like? You have something to do with that. You have power to make choices, to make that happen. The Lord will lead. The Lord will guide. How about in your spending? Are you laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven? I think it was D.L. Moody. I may be getting the reference wrong, but... One of those guys said, show me a man's checkbook and I'll tell you where his priorities are. If somewhere to go th through your checkbook register and look at every single entry, what would they see? What pattern would they see about what's important to you? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So important that we pay attention to this, come out from among them, be separate. Be separate unto the Lord. Be separate to him. Be separate to his purposes. Amen? How do we overcome? How can we remain victorious in the light of all of the pressures that are against us? 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, have this to say. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. It's our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ 
that becomes our victory to overcome the world. Trusting him, relying upon him. He's the strong tower. He's the rock. If you don't know him this morning, why not? It's so good that you're here. If you don't know him and you're sitting here with us listening to all of this, what an unusual message for you to hear. But we're so glad you're here. But did you know that God has an offer of salvation for you that is free, that you can't pay for, that you'll never be able to deserve, even if you lived a thousand lifetimes? God loves you. God loves you. Jesus Christ died for you. He has paid the price to purchase your life for himself, to buy you back. He wants you for his own. He loves you so much. Now it's up to you. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose from the dead. Now it's up to you. What are you going to do with this great offer? Are you going to believe in him? Are you going to trust in Jesus? Are you going to open up your heart and go the whole way with the Lord Jesus Christ or not? I'll give you an opportunity to say yes to the Lord Jesus Christ right now. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the truth. And we thank you for giving us chapters like this that give us your point of view and your perspective on this world system and how it operates. And we thank you for the great salvation, Lord, that you've drawn us out of the world. You've rescued us from it. You've freed us. And you've bought us with the blood of Jesus. And we pray now for anyone that may be here this morning with us that hasn't made that commitment but wants to. We pray that your spirit would encourage their hearts and open up their eyes and show them their need. And show them the solution. Jesus died for them that he might live in them. We pray that your spirit would work right now in Jesus' name. If you're going to make that commitment and you want to make that commitment... I'd like to ask you to do something right now, which may be difficult for you, but it'll be a blessing to everyone else that is seated here. I'd like to ask you to stand right where you're seating, right where you're seated, sat, seated, 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 right where you are. Just stand and acknowledge by standing, I want to receive Jesus Christ. I want him in my life. I want to become a Christian. I want to follow him. Would you just stand right where you are right now? And we'll pray for you. Anyone this morning? Anyone this morning? God's extending his hand of mercy. He loves you. He's given you a chance. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. You've got an opportunity to have God the Father say, I accept you completely. You can make that choice right now. Anyone? Just stand where you are. Okay. Well, let's all stand together then. God is good. And anyone who may be watching this over the internet or listening to it later on the website, you can make a decision. And if you do make a decision for Jesus Christ, then give us a call at Calvary Chapel here in Santa Cruz. We'd like to pray with you and follow up with you and
and help you get started in your Christian life. God bless you. Give you a great week, a great time of fellowship with the Lord, with one another. After the service, as soon as we close here, after this closing song, the pastors will be up in front. We'd love to pray with you. If there are any sick among you, they're to call for the elders of the church. Come up and receive the anointing of oil and prayer over you as a sick person. If any kind of a need that you have, just allow the pastors to come and minister to you. God bless you. Have a wonderful week in Jesus. Amen.